The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator, where each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, we'll be discussing whether America still acts as the world's policeman. We'll be looking at how a tiny publishing house keeps winning Nobel Prizes for literature. And we'll be discovering how the Georgians invented nightlife. First up... In his cover piece for the magazine this week, Jonathan Spire writes that as America's role in international security diminishes, history is moving in Iran's direction. He joins us now, along with Ravi Agraval, editor-in-chief of Foreign Policy magazine and host of the FP Live podcast. Uh, Jonathan, you write in your excellent cover piece this week that There are many beneficiaries from the splitting of American attention, as you put it, uh, Russia being an example. But you write that Iran is a country that has seen history move its way. So why is it that Iran, as as you see it, has the most to gain from the current conflict? Uh, let me first of all explain what I mean by what the phrase means by uh, Iran seeing history move uh, its way. This, in my view, is not only to do with the emergence of peer challenge to the United States, which of course is the Islamic Republic of Iran's greatest enemy, but also it's to do with developments in the region, Middle East region, I mean, over the last decade and a half, which has played very much to Iran's advantage, specifically the fragmentation and collapse of significant states in the Arab-speaking world, and specifically I'm referring to uh, Iraq and uh, Syria and Lebanon, and maybe Yemen also, the fragmentation and and partial or complete collapse of governance in those states uh, has taken place over the last uh, decade and after two decades. And Iran has proven to be the central beneficiary of this process in each case by the methodology and praxis of irregular warfare as developed and practiced by the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps. Iran has succeeded in planting franchise or client political military organizations in each of the countries in question, adapted the method to local circumstances and come out of the process with very powerful client organizations which either contend for power or indeed hold power in the places in question. And the Hamas organization is an interesting uh, and in some ways unique example of that process. So in this sense, uh, Iran has been the beneficiary of historic the main beneficiary, I would argue, of historic developments uh, in the Middle East over the last decade and a half or two. And the US desire to withdraw from central or or from from, uh, projects or main involvement in the Middle East over the last, let us say, decade or so is an additional fringe benefit of that process from the Iranian point of view. So that's really what I meant by using that, uh, that term. And in terms of the current conflict, very quickly that you asked about, well, Hamas organization is, of course, a client of the Islamic Republic of Iran, whose military capacities, so much in evidence since October 7th, are the product of that relationship. By returning attention 
in the region and in the world to political Islam, to military activity, and to military activity directed against Israel, Iran benefits because those are precisely the agendas that Iran would like to see foremost uh, in the Middle East region at the present time. So that's what I mean in terms of them being the main beneficiary of the events of the last uh, 11 days. Hmm. And Ravi, as we speak, Biden is currently in Israel. What what have you made of his decision to make a trip to Israel right now? And, and what do you think it means for the kind of escalating crisis in the, in the region? Quickly just want to touch on what Jonathan said, because, you know, Iran is indeed a beneficiary of sorts. Uh, I think it is uh, beneficiary kind of implies that it is passive. I think it is an active player. It has fomented a lot of the situations that Jonathan was describing, the various countries and the turmoil that we're seeing in, in places like Syria and Yemen, for example. But that said, even if it is a beneficiary, it isn't all good news. I mean, Iran's economy, of course, has suffered tremendously over the last years, especially in comparison with some of its global peers. The next few days and weeks could turn out to be deeply uncertain for Iran if things escalate, whether it is involving Hezbollah, whether it is uh, Israel deciding to escalate with Iran, which you'll remember is something that this government led by Benjamin Netanyahu has long discussed and talked about, about Iran's potential sort of breakout capacity on nuclear weaponry. And all of that brings me back to your question about President Joe Biden. He is in the region, I think, primarily to try and de-escalate, to try and tell the Israelis that you need to have a vision. It is one thing to react out of anger. It is one thing to think about vengeance. It is another thing to have a plan for where it is headed, for a clear sense of goals, operational goals, and how to achieve those goals. And one thing I've been hearing from a growing number of U.S. policymakers over the last couple of days is just a a tone of caution. Because as much as we have invoked 9-11 in the past 10 days to say that what happened on October 7 was Israel's 9-11, and it may may be that, it may be worse than that, but invoking 9-11 also means that you imagine a 9-11-esque response. And I think America's lessons here from the war on terror, which was misguided, which really hurt America's standing over the better part of two decades, there are some lessons there and missteps there that America can impart to Israel. I imagine Biden, with his sense of history, is going to make some of those points if he hasn't made them already. Hmm. Well, Jonathan, I I wonder what you you make of that, Uh, the the tone of caution, as, as Ravi described it, just then, and and uh, I mean, do you see perhaps in the from the American perspective over the last week or so, has there been a sense of America trying to to move away from the Middle East? We, all, we always read about its, its disaster, an Indo-Pacific tilt, but actually, the Middle East is not finished with America. It keeps being dragged back into these kinds of disputes, whether it wants it or not. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that with regard to US policy, I mean, it's notable, of course, that the Biden administration has tried very hard to normalize uh, relations with Iran, to induce Iran back to uh, what I think it would uh, regard as kind of regular and normal behavior in the region. And has, of course, uh, signally failed to do so, as is clear from Iranian activity across the region, but I think as is also clear with regard to the events of recent days. I think that America wants to do two things with regard to the attitude towards Israel. 
it wants to back Israel, of course, as a as an ally, but it also wants to, if it can, limit or it very much wants to limit any possibility of the expansion of this conflict. Partly, precisely because the United States, in the longer term, is looking for a way to to lessen its involvement in this region. So I think the sending of the USS Gerald Ford and now the USS uh, Dwight Eisenhower to the Mediterranean is very clearly a less uh, a message rather to Iran and its uh, Lebanese franchise, the Lebanese Hezbollah organization, to stay well out of this so that if Israel does, as it probably will still uh, launch a ground offensive into Gaza with the intention, as now stated by the government of Benjamin Netanyahu, to destroy the Hamas political authority, governing authority uh, in the Gaza Strip, the presence of the United States uh, ships in the Mediterranean is, in, Mediterranean is intended to transfer a message to the Iranians and to Hezbollah not to intervene in this. And I think I agree with Ravi or with regard to the, this picture not all being good for Iran, because then Iran uh, will face a real dilemma. Because if it fails to intervene when Israel is going into the Gaza Strip to destroy Hamas political authority, then much of the Iranian rhetoric, which we've heard a great deal of over the last two years, of what they call the unification of the fronts or the unification of the arenas, whereby Iran seeks to present itself and its various Islamist clients uh, in the areas surrounding Israel as part of a single struggle engaged in a single will uh, against Israel for the eventual uh, destruction of Israel as a strategic goal, will be shown to have been somewhat empty of content. After all, if Hamas authority in Gaza uh, is fighting for its life in the weeks ahead and the Iranians and their local franchise Hezbollah don't come in, they'll be proven to have been largely uh, empty words. But on the other hand, of course, if they do come in, with now the real possibility, or with then the real possibility of, so to speak, American Tomahawk missiles landing on Hezbollah positions in Beirut. Now, that puts them into a scenario which I think they very much don't want at the present time. So from this point of view, the Israeli response to the uh, attacks on October 7th does indeed potentially place Iran on the horns, so to speak, of quite a significant dilemma. And Ravi, Jonathan in his piece writes about the new multipolar moment, and, and in particular China and Russia's reactions to October the 7th. What have you made of Xi Jinping and Putin's reactions and, and what it reveals about their own intentions? Well, Russian President Vladimir Putin is a long-term, well-known mischief maker. So you can be sure that he will look to take advantage of what's going on in the Middle East. In In a sense, the last 10 days for Putin have been the best 10 days of the war in Ukraine in quite a long time. And that's because if the war in Ukraine was issue number one in Washington, D.C. for much of this year in a foreign policy sense, it slipped down to number three in the past 10 days. Uh, Number one, of course, being the Middle East crisis, but number two being a speaker vacancy in the House. So Putin will look to try and make gains, obviously, in the war in Ukraine while he thinks America is not focused, while America is looking to also supply Israel with what it needs. But on the Chinese front, I mean, of course, the No Limits partnership that China and Russia announced all that while ago on the eve of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that still stands. And that is still something that China, I think, will be looking to get more out of. China, of course, is likely felt a bit let down by how long this war has taken, by how much it has hurt uh, Russia's economy. So uh, this is probably going to be an opportunity for China to offer some background economic support for Russia, to prolong it as much as it can. 
In other words, to not just prolong it for the war in Ukraine itself, but for America. Because eyes on the prize for both China and the United States, it is competition in the Indo-Pacific that matters. The other arenas we're discussing today, Europe and the Middle East, are important, of course. But I think for both these two countries, the world's two biggest economies, they are very much focused at a longer term level on competition with each other and what that means, whether it whether it's Taiwan, whether it's military supremacy, whether it's technology, whether it's supremacy in the global south, whether it's more trade with countries in the global south, they're going to lock horns. And in a sense, everything the leaders in both these countries do, the United States and China, is geared towards that. And so the conference that uh, Xi Jinping is hosting this week, of course, it was planned well in advance. Uh, and this was mostly about the Belt and Road Initiative. But everything, including Putin's visit there, is is part of this bigger pie of of global competition, uh, and especially which, uh, with the United States. And Jonathan, do you think there might have been a, a degree of naivety or, or wishful thinking on behalf of leaders in Washington. I mean, as recently as a week before the horrific attacks, Hamas attacks, Jake Sullivan, the US national security advisor, said that the Middle East region is quieter today than it has been in two decades. I mean, have, have, has America horribly underestimated the point that you make very well in your piece, which is that Islamist movements of both Sunni and Shia varieties are now stronger than they've ever been across the Arab world? Well, I think the United States can be accused of, of naivete or misreading the situation in that regard, but they certainly were not alone in that. So I think that the government of Israel can equally be accused, or maybe with even greater gravity, given the greater stakes of a misreading from the Israeli point of view, of a similar uh, naivete or a similar misreading of, uh, of intentions and indeed of the nature of the adversary, the local Sunni Islamist adversary, uh, Hamas. Look, from my point of view, I think yes, and I've written about this quite a lot in recent years, it's a fact that the Sunni Arab populations stretching all the way from Egypt up to Iraq, uh, according to all available tests, when there are electoral tests or indeed other tests of political support, tend to, in their overwhelming numbers, favour this or that version of political Islam. And it is also a fact that all the projects associated with that broad trend over the last decade and a half, which populations in those areas have tried to sort of raise and put on the map and and, uh, and advance, have all been failures from the Muslim Brotherhood government in Egypt to the what we thought was the contained Hamas enclave in Gaza to the uh, largely Sunni Islamist uprising against the Assad regime uh, in Syria and, of course, also in Iraq, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. So all the various projects of those populations Islamist in nature, have been unsuccessful. We would have been or would be naive indeed, or, or simply uh, derelict in our duty as analysts uh, indeed, were we to assume that these populations have simply accepted or had simply accepted that their project had been defeated, that they must now accept in all those various contexts that others will be making the political decisions, that others will be in power. There was no reason to assume that that was the case with regard to Hamas, and there is no reason to assume it in other contexts, in Syria, Iraq, or, or elsewhere, as I mentioned. So, yes, there was a fundamental misreading there, I think, regarding the administration, that it thought it had sort of got through the moment of greatest uh, instability in the Middle East, 
and that it's all, well, we'd all got through that and that now it was kind of a, a time for greater stability. That was a misreading. And with regard specifically to Israel, the misreading was shared. Israel thought that it had turned Hamas in Gaza into a kind of pliant presence which would be willing in return for such measures as jobs, job, uh, the possibility of Gazans to work in Israel or cash donations from Qatar on a monthly basis, in return for that, could be turned into a kind of quiet administrator, governing force uh, de facto in the Gaza Strip. October 7th blew that notion out of the water permanently. And yes, I think that mistake on the part of the government of Israel was part of a larger misreading regarding the Middle East, which the United States administration, as you pointed out, uh, was also guilty of. And as it was wrong, as we've now seen it to have been wrong in the context of Gaza, it's also mistaken elsewhere. We could, of course, discuss policy implications of that in this or that context. But the general mistake, the general misreading, I think is uh, a real one. And it's important in each context to, to rectify it. Thank you, Jonathan and Ravi. Next, in the magazine this week, The Spectator's literary editor, Sam Leith, speaks to Jacques Testard, publisher at Fitzcarraldo Editions, the indie publishing house which has just won its fourth Nobel Prize in under 10 years. They have kindly allowed us to hear a section of their conversation in which they discuss the joy of translations, how a literary publishing house should exist as a work of art in and of itself, and why winning prizes isn't everything. What, if anything, do you think it says... Because, I mean, everyone's like, oh, my God, Fitzgerald's, you know, sweeping Nobel after Nobel, that a small publisher like you is in a position to publish all these people who are of such, you know, obviously titanic quality or reputation. The, the first thing is that I grew up bilingual. I'm French originally, but I grew up in, in the UK and I've always read books in French and in English and in translation to both of those languages indiscriminately. So when I started publishing books with Fitzgeraldo, it became totally naturally to me to want to publish translation. And that was one of the founding principles that half the list would be translation, the other half English language. And the, I mean, the pattern repeats itself with every Nobel Prize winner and with a lot of the people that we publish in translation, which is that there isn't very much interest from competitors. There isn't much competition at the point of, of acquiring these books, I guess. One thing that Alexievich, I know, Tukalchuk and Fossa share is, I guess, an ambition in the writing and in form and in, in, in playing with genre in some instances. I guess the, the thing that connects them maybe for, for in, in a way is that they're, they're all doing very interesting things with, with literature and the fact that you have to translate them is, is something that scares off other Anglophone publishers maybe. Um, I guess... An important thing, which I have been repeating in the last week or so, and you've probably heard this already, is that I only realized a few years into the life of Fitzgeraldo that I couldn't have built this list in any other Western European country because all of the writers that we publish at Fitzgeraldo in translation, and I'm not just talking about the Nobels, but people like Matthias Inar or Guadalupe Natel, um, all have the best publishers in France, Spain, Germany, Italy. And it's only in the Anglophone world that there was this kind of blind spot. And... I guess I was very lucky to start publishing books and to have this interest in translation at the point that I did because I was able to, you know, take on these these authors who, as you say, are world class. I think there is there, there's an arrogance perhaps to Anglophone publishing, and it's you know it's not just in the UK but in America as well that uh, maybe you know I, I guess English being the dominant language we don't necessarily need to look outside of its borders. 
thing there may be also a kind of legacy of imperialism there that traditionally uh, the world has come into you know in, into English literature in the form of Commonwealth writers writing in English, and perhaps there was a sense that with the Booker Prize, that was you know that was kind of enough. That was that was the diversity of voices that that were needed, and then I think there's also this idea that publishing translation is more expensive, is riskier, and I think the fact that you know Fitzgerald is on the brink of its tenth anniversary and has four Nobel Prize winners is proof otherwise that you know it is possible to make it work. Um, and to take risks on books of the highest literary quality in translation. Do you think that that what produces that that resistance here to the sort of stuff you're looking at is a kind of linguistic chauvinism, that thing that Milan Kundra, I think, in the curtain calls the parochialism of large nations, or that it's it's to do with a sort of legacy of resisting anything that does anything interesting with form, the sort of Kingsley Amis kind of we want plain stuff. We don't want fancy experimental work. I think maybe a bit of both. Um, I think I think a, a, the parochialism thing does resonate. And I, and I think, I mean, you see it in bookshops still, despite the recent boom, if we can call it that, in translated literature in, in Britain. Um, you know, translated fiction is almost considered an, a genre in and of itself in, in the Anglophone world. Yeah, and then maybe the, the formal innovation thing that, that there could be something there. I guess I don't know. I guess like someone like someone like Tom McCarthy has been, you know, received with some suspicion, for example, in Britain, as as has perhaps someone like Adam Thirlwell and their writers, both very much writing in the the tradition of, of high European modernism. So maybe there is something to that. Yeah. How do you go about finding these books? Is it a question? I mean, as you know, you know, as you said, you're sort of trilingual. Do you have translators who tip you off, or do you, you know, saying as you have that there, a lot of these are kind of have actually very prominent publishers in their home countries and across Europe? Do you kind of go and see, like, let's see what Gallimard's got and look at that? Yeah, it it depends. It depends on the authors. I guess there's no there's no one you know one way to find authors. I think in the early days of Fitzgerald, I was doing a lot of the you know, the research work and being proactive rather than reactive to submissions. So Alexievich I'd read in French before I even set up Fitzgeraldo. Uh, Jan Foster, as I mentioned, you know, I'd read before Fitzgeraldo and, and sought out his agent and, you know, asked whether the rights were available. In the case of Olga Tokarczuk, that did come through the translator Jennifer Croft. And the story of how we took on Olga is, is after the Brexit referendum, you might remember there was some some uh you know a wave of anti-polish sentiment in britain and some polish people got beaten up i think someone even got killed and i along with my white review colleagues and publishing friends was having long and and very involved conversations on what the role of a publisher is at a time of cultural crisis or political crisis and should we put out a you know an anthology of writing on Brexit and the future of Europe and, and and Trumpism or or not, you know, what's the correct response? And and ultimately the conclusion was the publisher's role in a time of difficulty is to just do what we do as best we can. And what do we do well? Well, we we're good at translating books, so let's find someone Polish. And at the point where I where I decided, right, well, something useful we can do is is find a Polish author to, to bring into English to add to the, you know, the diversity of voices and bring a, a Polish voice into English. I remember that Jennifer Croft had sent me, I think, the first 200 words of a translation of what became 
flights maybe nine or ten months previously. Two hundred words. Two hundred pages. Sorry, oh, two hundred pages. I was thinking that. And and I and I read I read those pages appropriate enough on a flight, and you know was immediately blown away, and and then you know went about my business trying to to secure the rights, and 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 we ended up publishing Olga that way. But yeah, generally, I mean, we we work with scouts. Obviously, the scouts will tip us off on stuff. We work with agents. We work with translators. Um, I guess the translators who we work with repeatedly totally get what what I and my colleagues are interested in reading and their tastes will align with ours. So if they recommend something, usually we'll, we'll check it out. And another really important thing, maybe that's become more important in recent years, is relationships with mainly other European publishers who are translating a lot. So, you know, the, the, the publishers who publish Adonir Shibli, Fernando Melchor, Monsieur Senar, whatever, in France, Germany, Spain, etc. If they recommend something, we'll, we'll pay attention. And, and to try and get, because so, you obviously you're the face of Fitzcarraldo publicly, you know, you're the, the one generally giving interviews. How much is, even though you've got seven people, is it still, are you the kind of, the filter? Does everything go through you? Are you, is it still small enough that every book that's published is your your baby, as it were. I mean, you have to sign off on, or do you sort of go like, "This is your bit of the imprint. You do what you like." I think it was. It's small enough still that I think we all still read all of the books. And my colleague Tamara, who, who as I said, was the, the first person to to join the company back in 2016, um, has been acquiring books for I think five years now. And I think maybe of the 125 books that we've published to date, I'd say maybe not quite a fifth you know a, a good 20 will be higher acquisitions i yeah I, I read i read them all but um you know and, and i and i sign them off in the way that i think any publisher would at any other publishing house but i've never said no to an acquisition that, that tomorrow has wanted to, to go forward with and we now have um a third editor jolie who just published her first book as an editor in september marie dalia sex sleepless which we i think we've just reviewed recently do you feel like you have a a particular taste yourself? I mean, can you is 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 the secret to your success that you're you're broad or that you're quite like there's a particular thing you like and you do that well? No, I think I think the Fitzgeraldo list is incredibly diverse in yeah, and, and, and kind of eclectic actually. And if you just take the four Nobel Prizes and as as examples, so you've got Oral histories, I guess, you know, memorial politics in the form of oral histories with Alexievich, and then Olga Tokarczuk, who is very much a writer of the imagination. Every book is, is you know, is a is a novel with a plot and written in a different style and and with characters she's made up. And then you have Fosser, who's writing these kind of semi mystical novels about very universal themes like love and death and grief and friendship and and very much rooted in the landscapes of of the western fjords of, of Norway where he grew up and then Annie Erno who's writing about her personal experience and finding finding you know playing with form as a way to to write to, you know the truth of of a, of a human life essentially so they're all doing wildly different things on the page and i think that's you know that's reflected across the across the list whether in in the english language or or in in translation i think one of the ways in which we conceive of the Fitzgeraldo catalogue is as a constellation. I think I, I read Roberto Calasso's The Art of the Publisher 
I guess when he came out in English, it must have been 2015 or 2016. And he writes in that book that um, the, the catalogue of a, a literary publisher and a small independent literary publisher could be conceived of as an art of work in and of itself. Obviously, every book in it is is an individual, you know, individual work of art. But added up together, they they compose a, a bigger whole. I think, yeah, th- this idea of the constellation that you might that there are connections between the books and between the authors that are subtle and and sometimes you know visible only to us, kind of putting putting the list together, is is a really interesting one to me. And and I guess the idea also is that you might start at you know one point in the Viscaldo catalogue and and can, you could read your way through it and sort of see all these connections and echoes and affinities emerge. But a lot of people can be quite snotty about prizes and prize culture. Clearly. You know, the Nobel has been very helpful in helping you to continue doing what you do. I mean, how do you see prizes as fitting into the kind of literary ecosystem? Well, I remind every author that we publish whenever they make it onto the list of a prize that prizes are terrible unless you win them. I think that's quite a useful way to think about them. I think, I mean, for us, obviously, prizes have been huge and and the Nobel Prizes especially have been, you know, transformative in terms of book sales and visibility, but also in terms of, yeah, giving a boost, not just to the authors who, who, who have won them, but to, to the rest of the list. Are that, you know, how are they useful for the, the wider ecosystem? I mean, it's, they're kind of inev- inevitable and they're part, part and parcel of, of the way in which, you know, people consume books to get, you know, very capitalistic about it. In this country, I think it's it's kind of, it's a frustrating it can be frustrating to to be sort of churned up or, or digested by by the the bigger prizes sometimes. But um, you know, as I said, it's it's. I think at least compared to prize culture in France, um, we're not corrupt here. There is at least a, a broadly ethical way uh, of of running literary prizes. That was Sam Leith and Jacques Testard. And finally, in the art section of the Spectator this week. Dan Hitchens reviews Georgian Illuminations, a new exhibition at the Sir John So Museum, which looks at the golden age of public spectacle. Dan joins us now alongside Louise Stewart, co-curator of the exhibition. So Dan, you say in your piece that essentially what the Georgians did was invent nightlife. Can you tell us a bit about how they did so? Well, before then, basically when night fell, it was too dark for nightlife to properly flourish and then court life basically changes courts start having parties late into the night that gets commercialized and the night starts being a time when you go out and you know, the shops open later meal times get pushed back people start going to pleasure gardens and the fashion changes so there's a wonderful note from Horace Walpole in 1777 where he noticed that people have started to be turn up fashionably late to events. He says everybody tries to be particular by being too late. And as everybody tries it, nobody is so. It is now the fashion to go to one of the pleasure gardens two hours after it is over. So this change in lighting really brings about change in the way people live, where they have their social life. And this exhibition is in that context. It's about the most spectacular displays of this, where you have these huge firework displays and light shows and installations uh, using this new technology by which you can light up the night. Hmm. Well, Louise, in terms of the, the sheer spectacle of these 
displays. I wonder in what way did, did light uh, in the Georgian period become a symbol of power and wealth? I mean, did people compete with each other to be the most extravagant? Absolutely. I mean, I think key to understanding this is the context of artificial light in the Georgian period, because although we have lots of new light technologies and more light than ever before, artificial light compared to what we know today is really expensive and actually relatively poor quality, particularly in a domestic context. So most people in their homes, once darkness fell, you know, you couldn't do very much. You might have had a rush light or some candles lit or perhaps an oil lamp, but those are really expensive and they don't cast much light. So the idea of going out into the streets and seeing these spectacular light shows must have been absolutely breathtaking. And when it was hard for people to access good quality artificial light because of the cost of it, it makes it a very potent symbol of wealth and authority. And Louise, could you tell us a bit about how you went about putting this exhibition together and, and why particularly you wanted to stage it at the John Zone? Well, the museum was actually approached several years ago by Melanie Dodor Winkler, who wrote the book on this subject. And she approached the museum actually because it's a really fitting location for this show because Sir John Soane, who founded the museum, the Soane Museum is his house and museum, was late 18th, early 19th century architect who was actually involved in designing illuminations. So he was the architect for the Bank of England. And in that capacity, he commissioned artists to design transparencies to illuminate the building and designed illuminations himself for royal jubilees. So it seemed very appropriate to have the exhibition in the museum. And we also used a number of items from our collection, Soane's own designs for illuminating the bank uh, and transparencies that were commissioned from him by leading artists and architects of the day. We also have the Robert Adam collection in the museum. Now, Robert Adam was one of the leading neoclassical architects in 18th century Britain, and he was really the go-to guy if he wanted a really spectacular illumination designed. And because we have his drawings, we actually have a number of the designs for illuminations as well. So we were able to use a number of objects in our collections, but also we borrowed items from other collections as well to tell that story more fully. And, and Dan, to what, to what extent was this simply a British phenomenon or did other European countries perhaps having similar technological advancements at the same time, did they have their own ages of illumination? It's certainly a general trend. I mean, arguably this starts with um, King Louis XIV in uh, 17th century Paris ordering that the city be lit by thousands of lanterns. So you could say nightlife starts then. I mean, Louise will know a lot more about this than I do. It was certainly a cause of international pride, I think, that the um, extent of one's celebrations. And whenever there's some major event like the king being healed from illness or a peace treaty being signed, that's when these incredibly expensive displays would be put on with people crowding into squares outside townhouses to look at these paintings illuminated from behind or going to these vast uh, fireworks displays. So... These were definitely seen as the way for the nation, or at least the king, to express kind of general rejoicing. Well, that's very interesting. I, I, that's interesting you said that, because obviously we were talking um, earlier in this podcast about how, because of the expense of a lot of uh, artificial light, it was perhaps something which uh, was 
could be seen as a folly of the rich. But actually, the way you've just described it shows that actually um, ordinary people could could get involved in a lot of the celebration of uh, of the light as well. Yeah, so this this trend arises as well of people putting lights in their windows, little candles to um, join in with the celebration. Like anyone could contribute, and I think there's actually some sort of roots of cancel culture as well here. That I think this, this comes up in the exhibition, but there are cases where, like, if you didn't light up your window to show that you were joining in with the celebration, someone might put a brick through that. Again, Louise could probably tell you more about that. So Joseph Banks, uh, who was a famous sort of naturalist and a friend of Queen Charlotte actually had his windows put through by the mob because his house wasn't illuminated but actually what they didn't realize was they were looking at the wrong side of the house so he had illuminated (laughs) the front Uh, but yeah and just just to finish on Louise do you think we've perhaps lost a sense of quite how sort of magical it might have been to have seen all all these lights lighting up I mean obviously London now is a city that is you lit up twenty four seven, but can you perhaps give a sense of what it might have been like to people for people to see those lights for the first time? Absolutely. So I think we have to remember again that this city, although cities were beginning to be lit much more fully compared to what we know today, this is oil lamps which are being hung outside buildings, so they cast a relatively dim light in comparison to the artificial lights that we are familiar with. And there's still a sense that the city at night can be quite a threatening, quite a dangerous place. If you're respectable, to be out after dark, particularly without a light, is slightly suspicious. So the idea of being able to be in these incredibly brightly lit streets with crowds of people must have been a very singular experience, really very festive and very different from the everyday experience of the city after dark. So I think this is one of the the real attractions of these events. Thank you, Dan and Louise. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore. And I'm Laura Prendergast, and we hope you'll join us again next week. <laughs>